Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Is it a sin to be gay? What does the Bible say about same-sex attraction? In this episode, you'll become familiar with the relevant scriptures that talk about homosexuality. You'll also learn what arsenikite, using the modern Greek pronunciation here, means in 1 Corinthians 6.9, a key battleground text for discussions of biblical sexuality. Here, the Apostle Paul pulls from the Greek translation of Leviticus 20.13, as well as Roman sexual sensibilities, to condemn both active and passive participants of same-sex acts. Whether you believe in accepting gay lifestyles or you think homosexual behavior is sinful, it's important to get a grasp on what the Bible says about this incredibly controversial subject. Although I have not spoken on this issue much in the past, I want to be true to my faith, and I realize that there are a great number of people who might get angry or express intolerance to me for my Christian faith, but I feel like it it was time to speak where the Bible speaks and put my stake in the ground here, come what may. So hopefully this can help you, whether you're for or against uh, homosexual behavior, because in the end, from a Christian perspective, the case is always going to come back to what does the Bible say and what did that mean in its original context and what does that mean for us today in the end. So here now is podcast 82, Biblical Boundaries for Same-Sex Attraction. Whether you experience same-sex attraction or identify as LGBT or Q, I want to say that I love you. I'm not against you. And I say that because God loves you. You have value in God's eyes. We all have value in God's eyes because God created us in His image. We have value. We have dignity. And I've worked on this subject, same-sex attraction, I've worked really hard to be fair-minded. It's a difficult subject because it's so controversial in our society today. I've really tried to listen to what people are saying and listen to different kinds of voices, listen to people from different perspectives, not just my own camp of Bible-believing Christians. I read a pro-gay book called What the Bible Really Says About Homosexuality where the author goes through various scriptures that talk about the subject and interprets them from a gay-friendly perspective. I listened to a lesbian podcast extensively where they went through all these different verses and explained their take on what they mean. And, you know, they call these verses that we're going to cover in this class together the clobber passages, as if these verses are used to beat them down. And, you know, look, that's not my goal. I don't want to beat anybody down. I want to represent what the Bible says as honestly and authentically and compassionately as I can. That's, that's where I'm at. I'm just a Christian who's trying to be authentic. I'm trying to be true to who God is calling me to be. I'm trying to be true to our sacred text, to our scriptures. And then I want to ask the hard questions about how does this work out in our complicated and confusing world? And I'll do that in our next session. So this time I want to look at basically all of the Bible verses related to same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior 
and then we'll take it from there. Jesus taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves. So therefore, Christianity is based on love, not hate. And, I, and, it, and it, it pains my soul that so often on this subject, Christianity is represented in the news and uh, in other places as being hateful. And I, I don't harbor any hatred towards people who experience same-sex attraction or who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer, questioning. I have no hatred towards you at all. I'm just trying to be faithful as a Christian to what the Bible says. And even if, even if, even if you were my enemy, Jesus tells me to love my enemy. So I'm really boxed in here if I'm going to be authentic. And I realize that some Christians have treated LGBT people badly in the past. I listened to the testimony of a man named Caleb Kaltenbach, who grew up with uh, not two, but three gay parents. And he came of age, he himself was straight, but he came of age during a lot of uh, gay pride protests and activism in the 80s and 90s. And he witnessed a lot of Christian hatred, um, a lot of Christian signs, uh, a lot of Christian hate speech directed at him and his moms. And he, he said that they threw water and urine at him. The Christians did. And so as a young person growing up, he couldn't help but hate Christianity. Ironically, he's a pastor today. So there's a, that's a whole other story we won't be getting into today. But look, um, all I'm saying is that if, if, if someone has misrepresented Christ to you, give God a chance here because I think he'll blow your mind. And to those of us who believe, we're faced with a dichotomy. On the one side, there's this idea that if we are going to be loving, then we have to accept everything that everybody does and believes. And on the other side, in order to be faithful, we have to say some things are wrong. And this is, this is difficult. I admit, this is difficult. Not only in this area, but in other areas too. And so my question is, is there some way that we can be faithful to the Bible and not be jerks? Because, like, I want to be able to do both. I want to be loving and faithful at the same time. And so whether you agree or disagree with same-sex marriage or, or what's called gay rights, I just ask that you hear me out. I'm going to go through the Bible verses in this one right here. And then next time I'm going to ask the hard questions. And I ask that you listen to both all the way through before you decide if you think I am full of it or not. <laughs> and as with before, I'm leaning, especially on this one, very heavily on the Bible because I am not the expert. I'm a pastor. I could tell you what the book says, and I could tell you what other folks say who have experienced these things, and that's where I, that's where I take my stand. So, as I said before, Christian sexual ethics just is biblical sexual ethics. So what do you say we start with the Bible and see what the Bible says about this subject? In Genesis 2.24, we read, actually we'll start in verse 23, Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this is God's design. You have one man, one woman, and they're, they're complementing each other. They're not precisely the same. There are significant physical and other kinds of differences between them. And he could have designed it differently. God's the designer. This is his pattern, a man and a woman in marriage. And that's the proper bounds he gives us for sexuality, a fact that Jesus reminds us of later on 
when they asked him about divorce. So, of course, but that's not the end of the story, right? The end of the story is not perfection in a garden between a man and a woman. There's the fall. And that's Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent said to Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say that, Eve? You see what the serpent is trying to do here from the very beginning of the Bible is establish distrust between the people and their God. And if he can establish distrust, then he can get them to rebel. And so Eve answers the serpent and they have a brief dialogue. And then the serpent says, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. Genesis 3, 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So this is the serpent saying, God's holding you back, Eve. He's holding you back. He's repressing you. He's stifling your exploration of your full human potential. This is the lie of the devil from a biblical perspective that God is holding them back. What is God really doing here? He's not restricting them. He's not restricting them. He's like a parent who says, don't touch the stove. It's going to hurt you. Don't touch the stove. Does a parent say that to a kid to hold the kid back, to restrict the kid, to uh, stifle their ability to flourish? No. It's the exact opposite. It's to put a boundary up so that, so that they don't get hurt and so that it doesn't stifle their ability to flourish. But, of course, our first parents didn't see it that way, and nor do we often. And they committed high treason against God, and they rebelled against Him. They didn't like God's rules. And so instead of living forever, they died. And we learn from Romans chapter 5 that this sin and this death contaminates us, even to this day. This condition of fallenness goes forward. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so also death spread to all men because all sinned. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man. Verse 18, And one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And so over and over we see in Romans chapter 5 that it was the consequence of this initial man or humanity or whether you want to look at it as Adam or humankind, this rebellion has spread to all of us. And so all of us are profoundly broken, myself included. We are imperfect mirrors reflecting God's image. We're imperfect. We have brokenness. Now, I struggle with certain things. You struggle with certain things. They might not be the same. I struggle, struggle with attraction to women I'm not married to. I struggle with patience. I struggle. Sometimes I'm tempted to lie if I think I'm going to get in trouble about something. I don't know what your issues are, but <laughs> this is part of my brokenness. These, these impulses that I have within me, they're part of my brokenness. But thank God there's redemption available through Jesus Christ. Amen? Thank God there's redemption available and that God can help us to know the path that He wants us to walk on and will, through the Spirit, empower us to live that out authentically now. And when Jesus comes back, the whole world will be flooded with healing for all of our unrighteous impulses, for all of our dysfunctional relationships, for all of our physical ailments. All of that will be healed in the kingdom age. And so we have that to look forward to as we're on our way there. 
The first text that really a lot of people like to go to is the incident of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's Genesis chapter 19. It's still in the first part of the Bible. But I'm not really going to go there with you because although there is homosexual desire in this story here, there is also, there's also violence. It's really more of a gang rape issue than just focusing on homosexuality. So, and and there, there are other verses that are relevant, so I don't want to spend time looking at Sodom and Gomorrah. I'll just leave that to the side. If the rest of the Bible says homosexual acts are wrong, then that will make it clear for Sodom and Gomorrah. And if it, and if it doesn't, then, uh, then it's ambiguous. Okay. So let's start for real then in Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18.22 is a simple verse. Although, in our culture today, I fear it may be very offensive. It says, very easily, right, very simply, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. Immediately, the big question is, well, what is an abomination? That's not a typical word we throw around every day. So, here's a definition from Merriam-Webster. An abomination is something that causes disgust or hatred. And they offer the example sentence, Although once common, torture is now an abomination to the civilized people of the earth. So abomination is something that is disgusting or gross or hateful. And it's not just for sexual acts. Throughout the Bible, we see all kinds of abominations. Uh, it was abominable for the Egyptians to eat with the Hebrews in Genesis. The gold and the silver on idols is called an abomination. Child sacrifice, eating unclean animals, practicing magic or sorcery. Also, Proverbs 7.16 gives you the mother load of abominations, seven of them there. Prideful eyes, lying, shedding innocent blood, devising wicked running rapidly to evil, perjury, spreading strife among brothers. These are all abominations. What does that mean? Well... It means that God says it's wrong, just like these other things that I just listed here. They're also wrong. They're also offensive to God. To God, seeing somebody devising wicked plans is an abomination, just like a male lying with a male. Now, the other point I want to make to you in Leviticus 18.22 is that the focus is on the act, the physical act of coupling. That's what is singled out as an abomination. There's no mention of attraction of orientation or of identity. None of those modern concepts are there. It's just focused on the act itself. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 20. This is another significant scripture. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be, guess what, put to death. <laughs> Getting the uh, pattern here? They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. Verse 13, if a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire. Ouch. That's nasty. That there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. Poor animal, huh? So these are some of the sexual misbehaviors that, according to Leviticus 22, earned capital punishment under 
the law of Moses. And I just want to make a couple of references before we jump into the New Testament, because that's where I really want to spend the majority of my time. First of all, let me say, the verse that talks about a male with a male, verse 13 here, if a man lies with a man, male as with a woman, this verse is not singled out as the worst. It's not, it's not said that there's a worse punishment here than for these other things. If there's one that's singled out, it's this one where a person lies with a mother and with a daughter. That person is burned with fire. So if there's one singled out, that's the most heinous, in this list at least, of these sins. So it's not, it's not like homosexual acts are, are exalted and unforgivable and the worst thing in the world. I know sometimes people give that impression because of the word abomination is used, but the word abomination is used all over the Bible. You know, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't make it better, but it, it, it does at least contextualize it for us a little bit. And then again, there's no, in verse 13 here, it just says they've committed an abomination. It doesn't say what's wrong with same-sex expressions or relations. It just says it's disgusting to God. However, today, many people don't think it is disgusting. Many people think it's exciting. Many people want to pursue this. And so we'll get to how that works itself out today in a little bit here. But for now, let's go to Romans because Romans is really the place we want to start in the New Testament. As you know, these Old Testament laws that I just read about, all these death penalties, they're not carried out in America today, right? I don't even think they're carried out in Israel today, to be honest with you. So these are part of a system that was in place at a certain time in a certain geographic location that, because of what Christ has done, has been fulfilled, and a new covenant, a new way of relating to God has come into play. And so a lot of people want to say, well, whatever Sodom and Gomorrah say, whatever Leviticus says, it's not really applicable to us today. And so the big question is, well, what does the New Testament say? So that's where we're going now. Romans chapter 1, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Again, the focus is on behavior, the act of sex itself. The focus is not on these other mental categories that we have today. Here is the one place in the whole Bible that I know of that talks about lesbians, where it says women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And what it says about lesbian activity is that it's contrary to nature and it's a dishonorable passion. Sometimes people claim that, well, it's contrary to nature. What that means is that these are heterosexual women that are indulging in homosexual acts. And so they're going against their own nature here. Well, if you read the context of not even the whole chapter, just like the second half of the chapter, you'll see that what the Apostle Paul is talking about here is the created order. The order that God set up in the beginning of maleness and femaleness and worship of him instead of other things in his place. It's not talking about our own sexual predilections. It's talking about how he ordered things, the nature that he set up overall. Also, when it comes to male-to-male -male sex, it says that it, that is being consumed with passion and it's a shameless act. So the New Testament is agreeing with the Old Testament that it's still something that God sees as wrong. 
In fact, this whole section, and I wish I had, we, we could go into Romans 1 and, and just spend an hour or two or three really delving into every nook and cranny here because it is so deep and fascinating. But the argument is really about creation and how everyone just innately knows that there is a God out there, that there is some maker. The heavens and the earth are declaring his glory and how it's bad to give the honor belonging to God to something else, whether it's a statue or an animal or another person, that we should not worship the creature more than the creator. We should worship the creator overall. And thinking we know more than God is just, that's just the same problem we had right in the beginning, isn't it? God said, hey, don't eat this one tree. It's poisonous. It's going to kill you. Don't eat it. The serpent says, did God actually say you can't eat from any tree? He knows that it's going to give you forbidden knowledge. This is the same thing we have throughout our history, not just on the sexual subject, but on a lot of the things that we're tempted with, right? And so here it is. We need to honor God and God's pattern, God's design. Two more texts. You ready? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In this part, we have this phrase, men who practice homosexuality. I'll get into why that phrase is so awkward in just a moment here. I mean, the number of words is, is a lot for, it's just one Greek word. But first, I just want to say, look, this is a vice list. It's a list of sins. You have pornea here, uh, sex before marriage and sex outside of marriage and divorce and remarriage. Pornea is any kind of sex outside of marriage that God says is wrong. Then you have homosexuality. You have kidnappers and slavers. You have liars who has not told a lie. Right? So this is not lifting up homosexuality, once again, as the worst possible sin, but it's listing it in with these other sins that are contrary to sound doctrine. Now we go to the real focus for the rest of our time. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. This text here lays open for us so much on this subject. I'm convinced it's really the one that we need to spend the most time on. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Oh, and by the way, Corinth was a city that had all kinds of sexual options available and socially acceptable to it. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says... Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. This is my favorite part. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See this phrase here where it says, nor men who practice homosexuality? That is not a literal translation. Not even close to what the Greek says. It's actually two different words in Greek. And we'll get into that in just a moment. I want to I show you this. Some have argued that what this refers to when it talks about men who practice homosexuality is temple prostitution. That what he's saying is you shouldn't go to the temple and pay a male prostitute to have sex with. That that's not fitting for a Christian. 
The problem with that is that there's no indication of that here in, in the context. It's not like he says, no temple prostitution, but monogamous male sexual relationships are fine. You know, there's no clarification there whatsoever. And the other thing people sometimes say is that he's condemning the Greek institution of pederasty, which is where an older male, a mentor, would take a sexual relationship with a younger apprentice, usually in his teenage years, and basically train him up and give him business privileges. But it was a sexual relationship that they would have together. The problem with that idea, that was a standard Greek understanding of male-male sexuality in the ancient world. But in Corinth, by the time the Apostle Paul is writing this, Corinth had been a Roman city for a long time. Greek institutions were not would not be relevant anymore. Not that there weren't Greeks there. I mean, he wrote to them in the Greek language. And there is certainly a Greek culture. But it's definitely the Roman period of Corinth, is my point here. And so it's much more beneficial to us if we want to know how the Corinthians, these original receivers of this letter, would have understood what he said here. It's much more helpful for us to look at Roman homosexual understanding than to look at Greek from an earlier time. And so we're going to do a little Greek together. What do you say? Arsenikites is one of the words used here, arsenikites, and it's a compound word, and it combines the word arsene, which sounds like arson, right? And I guess most fires are started by men in, in the courts today. I don't know if that's across the board. but And then uh, kiti, or another uh, way to pronounce that in, um, in Greek is koite. And that's the word for bed or sexual intercourse. And so this word here, arsenikites, is the word in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and it means male sexual intercourse. Man sex, literally, or male sex. And then, I'm convinced the best way to understand 1 Corinthians 6, 9, considering the fact that this word, arsenikites, is fairly unknown in the ancient world, in fact, a lot of scholars think Paul invented the word. Man sex, as like a word. I'm convinced Leviticus 20, verse 13, is the key to unlocking this. Okay, And we had read this already together. This is the English Standard Version. It says, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Right? Then I have the Greek for you in the middle. If you are, want to read Greek, there it is. And uh, I'll just uh, uh, circle the relevant part here. That's arsinos ketin, right there. That's the word for man and then sex, right in the Greek version of this verse. And so a literal translation is, whoever may sleep with a male in the bed of a woman, they have done an abomination. Let them both be put to death. They are guilty. So it's easy to see how arsinos ketin became arsinokitin. Or to say it in more of like an English pronunciation, arsenos koiten became arsenokoiten. You see those two words are very similar, right? The only difference between them is the S. So you drop the S, you put them together, and you've got yourself a new Greek word, a compound word. So Paul, so that's what I'm saying to you. Paul has Leviticus in mind, which focused on the sex act, not temple prostitutes or Greek cultural practices though it would certainly include them as well. Look, if, if men having sex with men is wrong, then you can't go see the male prostitute. And you can't take a younger male apprentice in a sexual relationship. 
It's really important to understand how the Corinthians would have perceived same-sex relations so we don't just read our modern ways of thinking about homosexuality. Coming to grips with the pair of words Paul used here will open us up to how the ancient Romans thought about this subject. So these, these are really the two words that are combined, translated, men who practice homosexuality in the English Standard Version. Okay? So the one is malachi, and the other is arsenikite. Okay? Malachi comes from the word malakos, and this is from the standard Greek lexicon, the BDAG, Bauer, Danker, Art, Gingrich, Greek-English lexicon. Okay? This is what the word malak malakos means. Pertaining to being yielding to touch, soft. Pertaining to being passive in a same-sex relationship. Effeminate, especially of catamites, of men and boys who are sodomized by other males in such a relationship. Arsenikite, from the word arsenikites, is a male who engages in sexual activity with a person of his own sex, a pederast, or of one who assumes the dominant role in same-sex activity. This is going to be a little graphic, but we need to go there. This is uh, part of an article from Wikipedia called Homosexuality in Ancient Rome, and it will enlighten you to how they thought about sexuality, which is totally different than how we think about it, at least most of us. This is what the article says. The primary dichotomy of ancient Roman sexuality was active dominant masculine and passive submissive feminized. Roman society was patriarchal and the freeborn male citizen possessed political liberty and the right to rule both himself and his household. Virtue was seen as an active quality through which a man defined himself. The conquest mentality and the cult of virility shaped same-sex relations. Roman men were free to enjoy sex with other males without a perceived loss of masculinity or social status as long as they took the dominant or penetrative role. Acceptable male partners were slaves, prostitutes, and entertainers whose lifestyle placed them in the nebulous social realm of infamia. Excluded from the normal protections accorded a citizen even if they were technically free. Although Roman men in general seem to have preferred youths between the ages of 12 and 20 as sexual partners, freeborn male minors were strictly off limits and professional prostitutes and entertainers might be considerably older. It was expected and socially acceptable for a freeborn Roman man to want sex with both male and female partners as long as he took the penetrative role. And we think America is progressive and liberal today, right? I mean, think about this. The ancient Greeks before the Romans, they were totally fine with homosexuality. In fact, it was an institution, a social institution of upward economic mobility in their society. Okay? The Romans, and the Romans like to make fun of the Greeks for that. And then the Romans come along and they're like, all right, who's giving it and who's taking it? That's the only question I got. And then the, the, the Roman man who is the penetrator says, hey, I can penetrate a woman or a man. I'm, I'm, I'm in control of my own virtue. Look, this is not how we think, this is how they thought about it, okay, in their society. So why does Paul use that phrase, Malachi and Arsenikite? Because one is talking about the passive role and the other one's talking about the active role. That's how they thought about sex. And he's saying, both are sins. You're not going to get into the kingdom if you continue in that practice. It's the clearest way I know to think about this. 
Okay, back to it. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, whether the active or the passive role, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Look, the biblical witness is clear and consistent from Genesis all the way through. It's clear and it's consistent. Sex between people of the same gender is a sin. It will keep those who practice it from eternal life if they don't repent. But there's hope! <laughs> and that's the next verse, right? And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's hope. We're not lost. If you're same-sex attracted or if you've com committed these kinds of behaviors in the past, there's still hope. You can be, what does it say, washed, sanctified, and justified. There's power in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And you can, you can be set free. You can be uh, saved, redeemed, forgiven, and given eternal life and a hope to look forward to. And you can overcome temptation today. And so I realize this leaves us with a ton of questions, right? Can someone experience same-sex attraction and be a Christian? How should we approach people who identify as LGBT or Q? How is it fair that gay Christians have to remain celibate? How is that fair? What causes homosexuality? And can you change your sexual orientation? But these kinds of questions will have to wait until next time. Stay tuned for the next episode where I get into answering some of the most common questions that come up about this subject from a biblical point of view and lean very heavily on people who themselves experience same-sex attraction, including Beckett Cook, Sam Albury, and some others. So stay tuned for that. I also wanted to read out a review by Jay Kamonic, who titled it, One of the Best Christian Podcasts. And he writes, I always enjoy listening to Sean Finnegan's talks on the Bible. This is one of the few Christian podcasts that I would recommend. Sean's talks are firmly rooted in Scripture, and the content is interesting and relevant, whether you are a longtime believer or you are new to the faith. Also, check out Sean's other podcast, Truth Matters. Well, thanks so much, Jay. It's so encouraging to receive feedback. If you would like to leave a review, uh, head on over to iTunes and do that. It really does help other people find the show. As far as our current series on same-sex attraction, we have one more episode on this. So if you're already getting tired by this subject, just one more, and then we'll return to some other subjects, some other biblical topics and cultural issues. So bear with me. Uh, this is not a podcast solely focused on this issue, but it is an important issue in our time. So I wanted to tackle it and be honest about it. Stay tuned for next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.